Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Everybody and welcome to Nightlight. That was the magical voice of Ken Quiet Hawk, and you can find his magical voice at NativeStorytellers.com. Mark Eddy and I are back again tonight with another exciting exploration of hidden history for your enlightenment and enjoyment. Our first hour uh, guest will be Catherine Kilgen, author of Shakespeare Suppressed, which is a really cool book, and Ramon Jimenez, author of the just-released Shakespeare's Apprenticeship. We will be discussing that we should be giving credit for the world's greatest canon to another author. They'll also be featured presenters at the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference in Oakland, California in October. Lon Krieger will be joining us in the second hour to discuss ancient garden beds of Michigan, which will be his subject at the coming up AAPS conference next month. He's also a contributing author to Ancient American Magazine. So... Mark, here we are again with with some really fascinating people to talk to tonight. Uh, I think they are fascinating, and there's some fascinating uh, research that needs to be heard by lots of people. Absolutely. And you know the subject that they the subject that they're talking on is one that is not taught in school, so it's really. Important for people to realize that that as research is done and people look into things, um, what used to be history in common, accepted history, no longer applies. Right. And I think we're going to get some new new insights uh, and, and also see that we really need to reevaluate what we've been taught in history and literature classes. And uh, I think all three guests tonight will set the record straight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and who do you want to welcome I, on first? Okay. Well, hey, first of all, I just wanted to say that the Mothman Festival was very well attended, lots of fun, informative lecturers 
was a family outing and the kids uh, trying out the zip lines for the first time. And the fashion statements uh, coming out of it will rival anything from the catwalks in Paris and Milan. So uh, I just wanted to just let let everyone know, you know, we promoted it, and I don't know how many people listened to that show actually ended up going to Point Pleasant, but it was a great time. And, oh, that's uh, fabulous, and they didn't get rained out. Uh, correct. Um, and for, fortunately, we only had a little bit of rain uh, from the Hurricane Florence, uh, but... Uh, and just direct your thoughts and prayers to those who were affected far more severely. Absolutely. But um, yeah. Um, but with um, you know, the, the um, Shakespeare authorship controversy, uh, you know, we might as well just get started on that. And you know, we. Uh, you know, well, really let me put this. They're both both of their mics are open. Okay, good. And you know, and you know, I just want uh, you know, look, Ramon, uh, know you know how much we appreciate uh, giving us basically an exclusive about his new book, and we'll be covering that in just a few minutes. But maybe we can just start off with Catherine and her her book uh, Shakespeare Suppressed, and you know, Catherine, you. Um, you know, reproduce in your book the introduction to the first folio, and, and you have you know quite a lengthy section uh, that gives us the you know maybe some of the first indications that something is. is we're dealing with a mistaken identity. Something's not quite right with the information presented in the first folio. Um, you know, maybe we should start with you know, why was it printed so long after such a successful run of so many plays? Yeah, you know, the first folio is a great place to start because this is that book it's a book of 36 Shakespeare plays the first collection of Shakespeare plays and it was printed in 1623 and um, it's the origin of the hoax that was perpetrated against the general public and also the great author uh, pointing the authorship of one of the greatest writers of the period, if not of all time, and he was recognized as such, uh, throwing the authorship on um, a man with humble origins from a small town who had, as far as we know, no education. And that is, we, we call him the Stratford man. His name was William Shakespeare. It looks like the great artist, the great author's um, name, but actually it was uh, pronounced Shakespeare. It, uh, if you look at the record, documentary records of the Times, they they would uh, spell things phonetically, and it was usually S H A X 
P-E-R-S-H-A-C-K-S-P-E-R, something like that, where it's a short A, Shakespeare. Not, never, it was rarely, rarely written um, as, as Shakespeare as we know it. So anyway, if we going back to this book, um, there were 16 pages uh, of the preface where we have um, poems given written to the great author, and they acknowledge that he has died. This is 1623, and it's true that the Stratford man was dead at that point, about seven years. And um, and uh, one poem written by one person, actually Ben Johnson, another playwright, prominent one of the period, um, he refers to Sweet Swan of Avon. So we have the place name Avon. That's in one poem. And then you turn a few pages later on another poem by another man. Um, there's a reference to Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. So you have on one page... Avon, and another page, Stratford. If you put them together, Stratford on Avon, and uh, that's where the Stratford man <laughs> that we, <laughs> that, uh, you know, thousands of tourists go every year to that little village, uh, thinking it's the birthplace of the great author. Um, but but that is the origin. That's where the idea that the, Strat- that the great author came from Stratford on Avon. But prior to that, no one, no one, of, of the period connected Stratford-on-Avon with the great William Shakespeare, the author of Hamlet. And so that's the, the first folio. And interestingly, you know, the, the, the six prefatory, uh, six, five prefatory pages um, are completely blank. And, you know, why is that the case? And at the same time, they didn't give us any biographical information about the great author. All they said basically was Avon Stratford, and that he was dead. You know, that, that's uh, in essence what what they what they tell us. And um, you know, even from the very first page, it has that famous image, black and white image that everyone knows. If they think of Shakespeare, they usually think of this image with the man with the very high forehead and kind of strange-looking um, hair. But um, right right off the bat, there's something odd, because this picture is not someone um, with bay leaves in his hair or holding a pen or holding a book. That's what typically a playwright or a, an author, a writer, how they would be depicted in books. And there's many, many examples like that. But in this case, he's, he, there's nothing. It just shows a man that looks like a gentleman, um, fairly plain. Um, so there, there's that's kind of a raises a red flag. But even more so, opposite this page is a poem by Ben Johnson. He says, reader, look not on his picture, but his book. So there's another red flag. Don't even look at this picture. So there's those are just the first few oddities. There's there's a lot more, you know. And I I really I get it. I have a whole chapter devoted to it. Yeah, and you, know, you do go into a lot of detail, and you know, even uh, say that uh, you know the folios are dedicated to the Earl of uh, Pembroke and. 
Montgomery, and and that kind of gives it the you know, the official stamp of nobility approval, or you know, it makes it look more official. Yes, and, that was yeah. uh, the dedication letter. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was interestingly this dedication letter to these two brother earls. It was signed by actors. Uh, the name of uh, John Hemmings and Henry Condell. And the the odd thing, again, here's another odd thing that raises a red flag. Uh, for over 200 years, Shakespeare scholars have have said that this was written by Ben Johnson. It was not written by the, the actors, Hemmings and Condell. So there's another, you know, fraud, if, if you will. Um Beyond the other fraud, on, in the even in the title of the first folio, today we call it the first folio. Folio because it's a large book size, um, and first because it was the first edition. There, it went into four editions. It was very, very popular, very successful. But the the actual title, if you look on the title page of this book, is Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, published according to the true original copies. Well, that last line is not true. <laughs> it's another false uh, idea because uh, the condition of many of these the plays contain, contained in the book were in pretty bad shape. So um, they were obviously not the author's originals. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, Catherine, since you just mentioned that Shakespeare was dead by 1616, if we go by what the Stratfordians say. Uh, you know, Ramon's uh, brand new book, Shakespeare's Apprenticeship, you know, is covering the earlier stages of the the author's. Uh, life, and you know, so you, and we need to go go back a little bit in time and get R- Ramon's information on, you know, what his discovery is all about. So, Ramon, you are delving into you know, the need for us to reconsider some of these early Shakespeare or early Elizabethan plays. Were written by the the this great dramatist, and thirty years later he rewrote them to you know uh, uh, you know the point was you know, them being re, uh, recognized as world masterpieces. So, um, you know, what's the background story on these? Uh, Plays, or were they just recently discovered, or did you, know, you uh, make the connection that uh, these weren't by some other Elizabethan dramatist? They were, they, they were by the, the author who would later become well, you know, world-renowned for Hamlet and King Lear. Well, that's right. Um, these uh, these these plays were published or or performed during uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign. Uh, they were published anonymously, 
many of Shakespeare's plays, the genuine ones, were also published anonymously. But these uh, were, uh, as I argue in my book, the, the first versions of of seven different canonical plays uh, that we re uh, regard now as uh, Shakespeare's genuine plays. Um, I noticed first uh, an old play called The Famous Victories of Henry V. It was uh, first printed in 1598, but it was obviously written uh, much earlier than that. This is a uh, short a crude play of 1,500 lines, in, all in prose, and it is about, it, it covers the same period, and it has the same characters and the same action as the Prince Hal plays that we know as uh, Henry IV, parts one and two, and Henry V. Uh, what the playwright did uh, with this play was expand it, and enhance it and add to it and create these three canonical plays out of it. There are four other plays. The True Tragedy of Richard III was uh, first printed in 1597, and Shakespeare rewrote that uh, perhaps 10 years later and created the Richard III that's in the canon today. Uh, a third one is The Troublesome Reign of John, King of England, he rewrote that uh, as King John, which was uh, not not even printed until the first folio. Uh, the Taming of a Shrew was is the fourth play. Uh, this is his first version of the Taming of the Shrew that we see today on stages, and the fifth one is the True Chronicle History of King Lear. This was a uh, a romance about King Lear uh, dividing his kingdom among his, uh, or between his two daughters, and uh, uh, Cordella, or Cordelia, as we know her now, uh, was, was refused a, a, a portion. That play was rewritten into the, the great tragedy that we know uh, today as King Lear. All of these were anonymous plays, these five plays, and they are still anonymous. Uh, Orthodox scholars refuse to assign them to Shakespeare on the grounds that they are not up to his standard, and that is true. They are not uh, very well written. They are well constructed, but they are obviously below the standard we expect uh, from Shakespeare. But the other thing is they haven't been able to identify the author of these anonymous plays. There's been only one serious attempt to uh, identify the author of, of just one of these plays, and that, in uh, chapter three of my book, I re refute that attempt. So uh, this, in effect, is the addition of five previously anonymous plays to the Shakespeare canon, and that, that's what my book is about. Uh, Ramon, did did you see? You were just uh, talking about the uh, const it's well constructed. You know, the plays are well, con uh, you know, the masterpieces are you know, really well constructed. But you know, did you see uh, 
you know, like a, a repetition of some words or phrases in uh, you know the early versions and the masterpieces. You know, so like you know, did did you have to do any kind of uh, uh, like uh, profiling? Yes, yes, and there certainly are repetitions of phrases and words in the subsequent canonical plays. But what is more important is that the plots are the same. The plots are almost identical between the early play and and the canonical play. The characters, almost all the characters are in both plays, the same characters. Some of them have the same name. For instance, uh, Kate in The Taming of the Shrew is Kate in The Taming of Shrew, the, uh, the earlier play. King Lear and his daughters are in the early King Lear. Richard III and all the, uh, the people that around him, uh, some of them that, that he murdered, they reappear in, uh, in Richard III, and the same with the other two plays. Uh, also, there are numerous uh, uh, dramatic devices and uh, plot elements that are repeated in the canonical plays. This is one of the strongest uh, pieces of evidence that they are also by Shakespeare. Because if they were not, then he took these plots, he took these characters, and these dramatic devices, these images, these ideas, and put them into his own play. So it's, it's pretty clear, if you read the early play and the canonical play, that they're by the same person. Uh, um, Juan, um, Ramon, oh. I have a question. Um, <clears throat> is was it common practice for? Because I know a lot of times there really weren't scripts for a lot of these plays, or they were written on the fly, just so to speak. It, was it common for um, a play to, to take form in in one place and, and evolve over a, a different number of of um, troops or groups of people until someone finally took it and and put it more formally down on paper? Well, not generally, no, no. Um, this, These five plays are unique in Elizabethan drama. We don't have two versions of other plays, uh, plays by other authors, maybe one or two examples, but these these five are are unique. Okay, thank you. Okay, and, and Ramon, when you're talking about, um, yeah, these are early plays by the great author, how old is the author about this time? Well, that's that's the key question, uh, and from the evidence that I've, I have to say that these are plays by a teenage writer, and uh, we haven't mentioned the Earl of Oxford yet, but of course he is the person who is the actual author of the Shakespeare canon, and there is evidence connecting him to to these five early plays during his teen age. That is, 
between the time he was 13 and 20. And the various things happened to him during that period. He was first accused of being illegitimate. Then uh, a couple of years later, he entered the law college, the uh, Gray's Inn. And these events uh, show up in the plays. They're in Troublesome Reign of John. There is a character, a fictional character, added or uh, inserted into the historical record who suffers the same accusation as uh, the Earl of Oxford did. Uh, four of these plays have very few legal terms or legal issues in them. The fifth one, King Lear, is full of legal terms and legal issues, over 60 just in this uh, in, in the first version of King Lear. So that's another indication that four of them were written before he entered law school and became familiar with the language of the law. And one, uh, he wrote uh, a year or two later after he'd been exposed to the law. And we know that throughout the Shakespeare canon, the plays are filled with legal terms and legal issues because the author had legal training. How much uh, legal training did Shaksborough have at the Stratford Grammar School? Well, we don't have any uh, any record that uh, Shaksborough had any education at all. The uh, it appears that the, the records for the Stratford Grammar School at the, at the time he was young uh, no longer exist. So we cannot say that he either went to that school or he didn't go to that school. Uh, there is no record that he entered any university or any law school, no record that he traveled anywhere except to London. So uh, the, the record is pretty bare with respect to his education. And there are some other facts about his competence, but we can wait and talk about that when when they come up. Okay, but uh, you know your uh, you know comments of you know, these early versions of the masterpieces were written by a you know, teenage author. Yeah, you know, that makes us have to call into question the need to redate the the plays and you, know, uh, you can look and you know, you know Catherine consulted you and Mark Anderson did as well when his Shakespeare by another name and you know you, you know, do uh, bring up some really interesting points like um uh, the example on page 48 to 49 of Catherine's book about um, General uh, Butler being sent to Ireland, that, that's another example of needing to redate the plays. And, you know, you, you, we just don't have an accurate 
chronology of this time when everything was written at this time. Like, that's can, that's can right. You explain, can you explain a little bit about you know the difference in this? Uh, you know, the traditional view interpretation of the uh, this Irish passage and what y- you are saying about General Butler's uh, ex- expedition to Ireland. Yes, well, the, the first thing to understand is that no Shakespeare play has been uh, competently dated to any particular date. The, we have performance dates, we have publication dates, we have other dates when people mention the play, but we, uh, the scholars have, haven't been able to nail down a, a precise date for any Shakespeare play. These plays, uh, the evidence that I have is that these plays were written by the teenage uh, Earl of Oxford between 1563 and 1570, and uh, some of the plays are pretty closely dated. Others uh, are, are not. It's not so clear, but they they all fall within this period. They are very similar to each other, and as I mentioned, four of them were clearly written before he went to law school. So in that period, um, these five plays were written and they were probably performed uh, at the court. Uh, Shakespeare of Stratford wasn't born until 1564. So if the dates for these plays and the evidence for them being Shakespeare plays holds up, that eliminates Shakespeare of Stratford from the picture. Okay. And now, to, you, you also want to ask about General Butler. <laughs> Well, that's that's uh, in one one of the plays, Henry V. Um, the Orthodox scholars have determined that a certain passage in the chorus to the fifth act, that that passage was um, written about the Earl of Essex, whom Queen Elizabeth uh, sent to Ireland in uh, March of 1599 to put down a rebellion. And so they have dated that play to 1599, and they call that, you know, the strongest evidence for the date of any Shakespeare play. Well, I've been able to show that it couldn't have been a reference to Essex at that time. Number one, he failed of his mission completely, and within a couple of months, uh, uh, it was known in, in London that he had failed, and he scurried back to London and was admonished by the Queen, and within a, a year or two uh, was beheaded. Now, I've been able to uh, associate that passage in the chorus to another general, Sir Thomas Butler, who was a confidant of Elizabeth and to whom, and whom she sent to Ireland to put down a rebellion— in in the same way, but in 1583, not 1599. And uh, there's a lot of ancillary evidence that supports
And of course, at that time, Shakespeare was uh, what nineteen, uh, and there is similar evidence for the other plays. Okay, well, uh, yeah, we need to bring uh, Catherine in. Yeah, I would in. love to give give another example, like okay, another sure, sure. play at court was uh, in 1577 was a play called The History of Error. And that corresponds to the comedy of errors. Now, the the Orthodox professor will tell you that was written in 1592, but here it was probably an earlier version of the play being performed before Queen Elizabeth in 1577, 15 years earlier. There's a lot of evidence like this. In fact, in the appendix of my book, Shakespeare Suppressed, I give uh, 93, quote-unquote, too early allusions to the Shakespeare plays. And oh, oh, there's quite a few to Hamlet, um, as early as 1589. And yet the Orthodox scholars will tell you it was written in 1601. And yet, like, for example, um, there's a reference to the line to be or not to be in 1593. Um, there's a play performance of Hamlet in 1594, but but you know the Orthodox scholars will say, oh no no it can't be you know because it was too you know mature a play. They only think the Stratford man started writing circa 1590 1592. You know we, they don't even have a record of him in London until 1592, and that was not as a playwright. That was as a moneylender. The first reference we have to him um, and and the theater was when he was thirty years old. So, with both of your examples, if if we're going by Edward de Vere as being the author, you know, there's almost like a twenty-year difference in. The, uh, the play, the dating of the plays, and that's like pretty standard. Uh, yeah, in uh, some uh, cases, it, it's even more than that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that that's uh, yeah, it goes from you know, t- taking someone from being you know, d- just getting start, you know, like you know, post college, you know, early twenties to. A more mature person, you know, that makes you know twenty, twenty-five years makes a big difference in uh, the maturity of a writer. Absolutely. Right. Right. Okay, and you know, uh, you know, we just heard you know, a little bit about, um, you know, Ramon, uh, you know, co- corrected. Yeah, the, the traditional interpretation of this you know, passage about Ireland from uh, Hen- or, you know, Henry the Fifth, uh, you know, Catherine, in, in your Shakespeare suppressed, you, know, you also emphasize um, you know, the, the sonnets are more autobiographical. Um, you, know, you, know, you, you do have a focus on the age. You, know, you do break the sonnets down into uh, some of them do have 
uh, passages you know, lamenting getting old, you know, death approaching. You know, the traditional Shakespeare uh, person would say, well, he was only 30, and, you know, people didn't live that long then. That that just doesn't make a a lot of sense. Yeah, that's another problem. We don't know exactly when the sonnets were written. All we know is that, well, two were published in uh, 1598, Ninety nine in the Passionate Pilgrim, but the rest were uh, in sixteen oh nine. The Stratford man still had about seven, about um, yeah, wait, uh, yeah, he died in sixteen sixteen, so um, another nine years to go. So yeah, that's it's not likely that um, he would say like in uh, uh, Sonnet thirty two when that churl death my bones with dust shall cover. Um, you know, or my glass shall not persuade me that I'm old. Like, you know, little hints here and there that he is an older man. Uh, well, the Stratford man was you know, pretty much in his prime still. Um, but, yeah, the, the sonnets are m- mostly written in the first person, and they they tell us his deep feelings for um, a young man, a beautiful young man, and a dark lady. <laughs> in which those three were involved in a love triangle. In fact, I'm going to be on a panel at the Oakland conference um, to discuss the dark lady's identity. But um, the most important thing is that the author reveals who he is in these sonnets. Um, Like, for example, in Sonnet 62, he says, Methinks no face so gracious is as mine. Well, gracious was a term meant for nobility or even royalty. Um, So he's saying that his face, you know, he has a gracious face. You know, he's talking about his noble face. Um, Another great giveaway is Sonnet 125. um, Were it aught to me, I bore the canopy with my extern, the outward honoring. And this is a reference to bearing the can- a canopy over Queen Elizabeth um, when she was in public. Uh, four or five people would, would hold uh, like tent poles uh, with a covering over her as, as she's going through the street. Well, to be one of those four people or so, to hold the canopy was a great honor. You, you had to be somebody, you know, fairly highly ranked. Or if you were like you know an important person at a university or or you know, some sort of organization, then you would have that opportunity. But here the great you know the great author says, "Were it aught to me, meaning is, is it anything to me that I held the canopy?" I mean, he, you know, that that's somebody who's saying it didn't mean much to me. I did it, but what's the big deal? Whereas if you know the the Stratford man who who came from humble origins, he had no court connections. To hold to, to be the man to hold the canopy that would have been the, one of the greatest honors of, of his life. And we right. we do know that the Stratford man was um, trying to advance himself socially. He he you know he, he and his father applied for a coat of arms, so he, they could put the word gentleman. At the end, after their name, that was a big deal. So, uh, you know, these little bits and pieces in the sonnets don't match the profile of the Stratford man. 
<laughs> Another example, uh, Mark, is uh, Sonnet 72, where he says, my name be buried where my body is. Mm-hmm. In other words, he's concealing himself. And in uh, a, a, a later Sonnet 76, he says, uh, he refer, uh, there is a line that says, every word doth almost tell my name. And there, there he's referring to e- every, Evere. That was his name, Edward de Vere. And there are examples mm. like that throughout the sonnets and throughout the plays that, that identify the writer as a nobleman and, and a particular nobleman. Yes, in fact, uh-huh. Hamlet. Hamlet is a profile of the Earl of Oxford. Um, like, for example, Hamlet, um, uh, he was on a ship that was attacked by pirates, and he barely escaped with his life. Well, that exact incident happened to the Earl of Oxford. The same thing. <laughs> he, he went and took a grand tour of Europe, and on his way back, he barely made it because of the pirates. Um, and he also, um, m- many historians see a connection between Polonius, who was the counselor to the king, um, and a Lord Burley, who was the counselor to Queen Elizabeth, the main counselor to Queen Elizabeth. Um, and in fact, it's, he lampoons, Shakespeare lampoons Lord Burley, this guy is one of the most powerful men in England. How how could he do that? Number one, how would he even know about him to lampoon him? Number two, how did he survive doing such a thing? Okay, well, and um, making the queen unhappy uh, did cause people to be executed. So I don't see how, like, a... a a country bumpkin guy could you know, make fun of so- someone so important to the queen and you know, get get away with it, unless he had connections, which takes us back to you know, your and Ramon's uh, uh, comments that the real author was a nobleman who who actually could uh, you know, stand his ground against the the, the nobility. Yes. Okay, and, and you know, and you know, the opening of the sonnets is addressed to. Someone who uh, uh, displeased the queen and he survived. Uh, can, you want to get into that a little bit? The Earl of well, Southampton. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the great author dedicated his first two poems. They're long poems, narrative poems, Venus and Adonis and then uh, The Rape of Lucrece, both were dedicated to the Earl of Southampton. He was, at that time, when they when it came out in 1593 and 1594, the Earl of Southampton, he was a glittering aristocrat. He was, you know, one, the Queen's, one of her top favorites. Young, handsome, beautiful. Everybody was, you know, wanted to date him or know him. How did 
did this Trafford man get access to him? How did he meet him? Uh, we we have you know we have no clue. And back then, like you mentioned, if if you dedicated a work to a nobleman and he didn't like it or he didn't know you or whatever, you know the next edition, if it did come out again, it it would re- they would remove that dedication. Uh, so and yet Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, they went through multiple editions, multiple editions um, with these dedications intact. So obviously they they had a connection, but. As far as we know, there's none to the Stratford men, no documentary evidence. But the Earl of Oxford uh, did know the Earl of Southampton because at one point his daughter, the Earl of Oxford's daughter, Elizabeth, was proposed uh, a matching with the Earl of of Southampton. It didn't happen, but certainly um, they they knew, knew of each other right off the bat there. And, and on top of that, there's no evidence that Shakespeare or Stratford ever sought a patron or obtained one or had any contact with a nobleman or a patron. So uh, there's evidence for Oxford. There's no evidence for Shakespeare on point, point after point uh, with these plays and poems. Okay, so, uh, uh, Ramon, when you know people come to the conference from uh, October 11th to the 14th in Oakland, uh, you know if they want more information, they go to ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org. But um, you know. This kind of information is going to be uh, discussed. Uh, you know, C- Catherine said uh, she- she'll be covering uh, uh, the Dark Lady uh, information as well. But, but, but what are some other topics that will be brought up at the uh, conference? Well, uh, there are uh, four days of uh, program. Um, Mostly uh, lectures by scholars. Uh, They range from uh, discussions of uh, the use of uh, legal language in the plays, the dating of the plays, um, the uh, other other connections between uh, Oxford and the plays. There will be a film shown on Saturday night about Oxford's life. And at other... uh, Points during the conference, there'll be videos, short videos about the authorship question, and um, I think we'll even have uh, some short dramatic presentation as well. Okay, and, and uh, uh, Catherine, we're, uh, we're yeah, we have like twelve minutes or so left. Um, what what's the difference between viewing the um, authorship controversy from a his, you know trained historian's point of view versus someone like me who you know, just you know had to take some uh, classes in Shakespeare as a, a literature major? 
Is, is, is there a pretty big difference? Or? Well, um, I, I think what it's very important, and I don't think you need to be a trained scholar, but I, I you know, it's the part about evidence. You know, there is hmm. lifetime evidence during one's lifetime, and then there's posthumous evidence after one dies. That those are you know the really the two categories, and that's how I, I did it, set it up in my book Shakespeare Suppressed. Um, for the evidence for the Stratford man as the great author is entirely posthumous, and it was like as we opened today's show, it was the book, the first folio of the plays that threw us off the scent. Um, but um, as far as lifetime evidence, okay, people can say, well, wait a minute, you know, how, how is it that we still think that he is the author? And it's true. He was involved with the theater, the Stratford Man. He did come to London, and he, um, he was first uh, allowed to receive payment for uh, an acting company. So he was associated with this one acting company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. And then a few years later, he became um, a, a founding shareholder of the Globe Theater. And then a few years later, the, another theater, the Blackfriars Theater. And um, when Queen Elizabeth died, a new, a new acting company was formed called the King's Men in 1603. And he was a member of that acting company. So yes, he was involved in the theater as a member of an acting company and um, as a theater shareholder. And but that's about it. <laughs> there's nothing to to. There's no proof that he actually acted. Um, and there's no payments to him as a writer or even as an actor. So when we do have payments to other actors and writers of the period. They, we have, for example, a book, uh, a diary of a theater producer, Philip Henslow. And in this book, it's a valuable resource, there's many, many um, playwrights written in there as far as being paid for plays and, and also being loaned money. Um, but nowhere is in that diary uh, is a mention of Shakespeare. So, you know, everywhere you're going to look for Shakespeare in the documentary evidence, you know, with something, you know, concrete that he really was a writer, it, you can't find it. And the same way with the with Shakespeare's will, uh, Mark, the uh, yeah. we have the uh, the will of Shakespeare of Stratford, or a three-page will. There's no mention of his theater activities. There's no mention of his theater property. There's no mention of any play that he either wrote or appeared in. <laughs> and there um, were at the time there were twenty plays that had never been in print. He, he doesn't he doesn't mention plays or books or manuscripts in his will. There are no uh, he left no notebooks or no diaries, no evidence that he wrote anything. In fact uh, from the six signatures that we have, it appears that he was not comfortable writing, certainly not writing his name, since uh, 
these signatures are not completed, and several of them are spelled differently. So there, there is simply a total vacuum when it comes to any evidence that Shakespeare had anything to do with playwriting or writing of any kind. Yeah, it really it's an unproven theory, really. And it's a it's a historical question, you know, not a literary one. Uh, that that's where I think a lot of Shakespeare scholars have uh, gone astray. Is they 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 look at the plays and they try to figure out who wrote them by by their by the words and the language and the ideas and so on. But they don't look at the historical record, and there simply is no historical record that Shakespeare wrote anything. That's right. Okay. And it, you know, it, what it boils down to is that William Shakespeare was a pen name. In fact, half the time that the name was in print, you know, referring to the great author, it had a hyphen between shake and spear, which was an indication of a made name, spear shaking. And, you know, you can apply that instantly to the Earl of Oxford. He was a jouster. He was a champion of the – he won two or three tournaments of jousting. Um, and the main instrument that they use is called a spear. So he was a spear shaker. That that was also a popular phrase to to shake one spear during that time frame. So uh, you know, academia can't seem to understand that there could have been two William Shakespeare's of the period who were involved in the theater. One pretty much as a an investor and a financier, and the other one the great author using a pen name. And um, this was not unusual. For example, I often say John Davies. There were two poets named John Davies of this period. Um, and to this day, scholars still mistake, you know, which wrote what. You know. so. oh, in, in, in your analysis of the first folio, you do mention Lily... Marlowe, Kidd, and they were actually more contemporary with uh, the Earl of Oxford. Is that right? No. Yes, in fact, Lily was one of Oxford's secretaries. The, those others, though, uh, Marlowe and Johnson and so on, uh, they're, they're more contemporary with Shakespeare's uh, dates. Okay. Well, it's just uh, they're, they're, they're mentioned in the um, uh, uh, folio, and I, I was just uh, I, I wanted to you know, tr- try to tie in with you know what Catherine said about uh, John Davies and yeah, you know, just put together. You know, you know, I thought over the last hour we've done a real nice job of uh, piecing together what a lot of was going on at, at court and the theaters and. Yeah, Mark. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. I have, I have a question. Um, Shakespeare oh, sure. had children, and um, I, I believe they were literate. Is there is there any history of what became of the children if if they were you know connected to the theater if they if 
they were connected in any way to any kind of productions or anything like that because, you know, theoretically there should have been money or something. Yeah, well, um, William Shakespeare, he did have two daughters, but as far as we know, Mm -hmm. they were illiterate. And the Superman father was also illiterate. He was was raised in an illiterate household. So these are not, that's not the um, environment um, to foster one of the greatest geniuses of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, whoever it was has hid quite well, actually, and... Um, you do begin to wonder, you know, I know that there are reasons because of court stuff and everything that, that, and some of the, the, the plays certainly, uh, weren't kind towards the court. So, um, but there's such, the expanse of, of what it was, I mean, you have, things like Hamlet and King Lear and all of the Richards, and then you have um, Much Ado About Nothing, and, and um, uh, you, you know, he, he, he hits the... Yeah. 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 I mean, he, he hits the full spectrum of, oh, yeah. um, of expression. And, I mean, Midsummer's Night Dream is just, you know, really out there. It's almost, if there was pot then, I would have thought he would have been smoking it. Um so, and, and, and Barbara, yes, I, it, yes. I, I just uh, go ahead and finish your thought. I, I want to add something about the conference when after you finish. Oh sure. No, I just it it. Most authors have a genre, and he didn't seem to have one. I mean, there right. there were there were there were groupings all over the place of different things. But but um, but they were so you know, you know the the spectrum was so broad it was it, it it I could easily see how people would think different people had written the different groupings. Right, right. I just wanted to mention uh, and invite everyone to come to our Oakland conference. It'll be at the Oakland Marriott uh, the 11th through the 15th. Um, Students are admitted without charge and also faculty. And as I mentioned, there'll be a variety of uh, speakers, uh, videos, there'll be a film. And um, uh, uh, everyone is welcome. We're we're inviting everyone to to come, the Oakland Marriott in October. Fantastic. And and, um, we're, we're down to... A minute or so, uh, you know, Ramon. Where uh, can people find your book? And Catherine, you want to plug your website as well? Well, my book's available uh, through the the regular book selling channels, Amazon. It's published by McFarland, and they have a website. It can be purchased there also, and there will be copies at the conference for a reduced rate. And and Catherine's book as well. Yes, yes, and and you can get my book. Uh, you can visit uh, ShakespeareSuppressed.com. Um, I'm also on Amazon, and um, if if you want to be really good, go to your local library and 
tell them about Ramon's book uh, and my book and have them order it, too. It, it, these, these type of resources belong in, in every library. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for being here tonight. We really, really appreciate this. Thank you so Thanks much for, for the, the opportunity. opportunity. Yeah, it was it was it was great. Thank thank you. Uh, a lot of fun. H- hope it was more enjoyable than Coast. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and and, right. and hopefully we can get you guys back on again at another time too. That would be fun. lovely. We'd be glad to. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you. Good night now. And we won't talk Bye. about bacon. <laughs> Bye. Good night, guys. Good night. Okay, Barbara. Okay, Mark. We're, we're waiting for Lon to call he, in. We're waiting for him to call in, yeah. And, you know, we're we're going to be talking about uh, a topic of mine that is favorite, you know, ancient Anything in America, you know, perks my interest and gets me excited. And certainly, um, you know, and just as, and I was about to really start going on and on here, and here he is. Hold on a second. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Lon. Well, hello, Barbara and Mark. Uh, good hey, to chat Lon. with you tonight. Hi. How, How are, are you? You hit us, oh, you no, hit no, us right on the nose. Oh, good. Yeah, I was just enjoying the show. <laughs> what a what a great, uh, fascinating couple of folks and a very fascinating topic. I'm going to run right out and buy the books now. <laughs> I want to learn more. Well, if you if you could get Catherine's book at a discount any place, do it. It's not a cheap book, but it is very worthwhile reading. Well, I don't know uh, about any Ramon. Good, any really yeah, good yeah, book? Yeah, that's just uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> Any good book uh, deserves a good price. In it's, my got it. so. <laughs> it's got it. It's got it. I'm I'm really ex- I'm really excited tonight to have you you on the show because um you're going to be talking about something that I didn't know existed and that's the uh the gardens the garden beds in Michigan. Thank you. Okay, yes, uh it's a fascinating subject, uh, I think. Uh, once people uh, see some of the original surveys and then hear a little bit about them and then are brought into the present, um, history comes alive on, on this particular topic, I think. And uh, I was talking to a 15-year-old yesterday from Punta Arenas, Chile, and uh, he's started asking me questions uh, about this ancient American history, and he was just dumbfounded. He was amazed. So uh, hopefully we can uh, really open uh, some eyes uh, with some uh, fascinating historical uh, uh, explanation here. Have you been able to carbon date any of them? I mean, to get a, a real feel for how old they are? Uh, to to a large extent, yes. Um, if if we're talking about in particular the recently rediscovered ancient garden beds of Middle and Upper Eastern Wisconsin, um, which ha- which they have literally just scratched the surface of in the past uh, four or five years, 
they have found uh, charcoal and plant phytoliths, plant starches uh, from the mound or uh, from the raised garden beds in Upper Wisconsin that date. The early datings we have presently are circa 800 to 1000 AD. So these would be considered, in my view, some of the more recent ones. <laughs> so we, you know, as we uh, discuss and and uh, you probe the topic, uh, we can take people even further back in time. Okay, and and Lauren, what um. In, in your articles in Ancient American Magazine, uh, you have the reproductions of you know, so, some of the original drawings of what the garden beds look like. You have the uh, spoke uh, wheel uh, uh, beds. You have some that look like... Um, you know, the outline of a ship, uh, others that are you know, just uh, uh, strange geometry, right? Yeah, like ho- horizontal uh, rows. You know, do do we know? You know, was uh, you know a certain crop grown in you know the, the certain geometric pattern? Like you know, do. You know what? What was the uh, purpose for these designs? Well, that was the first great question and mystery that grabbed my attention when I first um, discovered this uh, uh, these uh, diagrammatic surveys that had been developed by man uh, and an early. Uh, Northwest Territorial Explorer by the name of Henry Schoolcraft, which I know you are familiar with, but our audience may never heard of him. But he was um, a, a tremendous researcher, surveyor, and explorer in about, from about the 1818 to about 1860 or so. And in his uh, early explorations in the Southwest Michigan, uh, primarily uh, the Kalamazoo, St. Joseph, Three Rivers, Paw Paw area, down to about the current border of Michigan and Indiana. In that southwest region uh, were tremendous uh, post-glacial river systems. Uh, the Grand River, uh, which was an impressive river, still runs from Grand Rapids, uh, south, <clears throat> southward and over to uh, Lake Michigan. Um, this area that he happened across had hundreds of these uh, large and small uh, spoked wheels, uh, ship forms, like you say. There was essentially eight different types of geometric raised garden beds that he came across in this vast expanse of tremendous farmlands, ancient farmlands, which are still among the uh, best crop-producing areas uh, in Michigan today. And the latest information I had a few years ago was that Michigan is actually the fourth or fifth largest agricultural state, 
and uh, producing state. And this southwest region of Michigan anciently uh, held these tremendous geome- uh, geometrically designed beds. Now, to give you scale, and, ans- and then I'll answer your question more directly, um, if you, I, I noticed that Barbara is streaming some of the diagrams uh, and schematics of these. They are, of course, one-dimensional. Um, I did do a, a rather funky artist's attempt at a rendering of a bird's-eye view of what they might have looked like on the landscape. These uh, garden beds ranged, according to Schoolcraft, anywhere from 20 acres to as large as 300 acres. So they were oh, wow. sometimes, yes, they were sometimes massive in their coverage of the landscape. They were approximate, when we use the term raised garden beds, just visualize these beds being 18 to 22, 24 inches high anciently in these fascinating geometries. Now, it remains a mystery, of course, why they formulated their beds in this type of format or design. We, we have no real, all we can do is speculate. And one of the speculations, for instance, for the spoke wheel might be um, might have to do with an astronomical uh, reflection they thought of that they saw in the heavens. Uh, It might be somewhat, uh, there have been some researchers who uh, talk about ancient circles in regard uh, to the ancient Atlanteans and so forth. I don't know that I subscribe to much of it other than uh, they found uh, that the system of those geometries worked for them. And uh, to your point about what were they growing and and how were they growing it on these uh, garden beds, they were using what has come down to us today uh, through First Nation people today Uh, a system known as the Three Sisters Ancient Form of Gardening. And uh, this is a system that uh, wherein a uh, a person takes a few maize seeds or corn seeds, you plant them, for instance, if you consider that spoked wheel, uh, they would plant the corn in the center of the hub, And it turns out that corn um, is uh, a tremendous, uh, it just sucks the nitrogen out of the soil. And so these people were wizards at gardening. And so what they did is they would then plant bean seeds around the outside of the corn in the center. And the beans would then uh, climb the corn stalks as they grew, and they were symbiotic. So the corn stalks would raise the bean vines, and the beans would grow. They would help shelter the uh, corn stalks from uh, uh, high winds, and they had the added benefit of helping to restore nitrogen into the soil. 
the third crop that they would then plant outside the beans was squash primarily. And the squash would also help restore uh, and help regenerate uh, nutrients into the soil. Now, that sounds brilliant. Uh, Why don't we do that today? <laughs> it, it is fascinating. And uh, the, uh, the Seneca Nation, for instance, in Pennsylvania and southern New York region, uh, there are a great many uh, First Nation people uh, who still farm in the Three Sisters uh, system. In fact, uh, if you were in St. Agnes, Michigan, uh, I could direct you to the Ojibwa Cultural Museum, which has an ancient uh, bark lodge, and they have a sign uh, that talks about their use of the Three system, Sisters system, which they pronounce Giti Eang, and uh, that refers to the Three Sisters method, which they still employ today. Um, and so uh, to take you to another area of America, which I find fascinating, is uh, still has the Three Sisters system in use and, and also employs, oddly enough, raised geometric garden forms are the Zuni of Upper New Mexico. And, uh, the, and then in uh, Chinampas, Mexico, they farm today uh, massive raised garden beds um, in a three sisters form along with wild rice. And uh, we might touch on wild rice later on when we, when we talk about Wisconsin. But uh, initially my research was focused on these ancient garden beds that were talked about and described by Schoolcraft and I found them fascinating, and I began this research a couple years ago. And as I delved further into it, I discovered that it was considered a dead topic among uh, archaeologists, anthropologists, and academics. Um, my background, incidentally, uh, goes back to the University of Arizona, where I did my undergraduate work in the late 70s, primarily in geoscience, in uh, geology, anthropology, and archaeology. Uh, and then later I changed my degree. And then uh, in the late 80s, I did my master's degree at the University of uh, Oklahoma. Um, that said, um, I'm also happened to be uh, uh, on my grandfather's side, uh, 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 Creek Cherokee. And so I, our family has uh, we're, uh, the... The Creek are known as the people of the one fire, for instance, whereas the Chippewa, Ojibwa, Odawa are known as the people of the three fires. And and so we have all these many uh, interactive relationships. But it turns out that as I pursued my research, because I found this geometry fascinating, uh, and I don't know that we'll ever get a, an answer to it, but by the 1880s, uh, a man named Bella Hubbard, who was the assistant state um, archaeologist for the state of Michigan, or geologist, I should say, for the state of Michigan, sought to try to document and relocate and find some of these ancient beds that had been described by pioneers earlier for 50 years or more. 
and he only managed to find a few rows uh, on the edge of a woods uh, near Kalamazoo. And, um, and he said, basically, they've all been plowed under. Now, we do have good descriptions of the beds from Schoolcraft, and thankfully, he documented these things, and others did as best they could at the time. Uh, otherwise, we'd know nothing about it. But this research remained dead in the water, essentially, until it was readdressed in 1959 by several uh, academics, uh, primarily out of the University of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, I believe. And they tried to pin down which uh, native tribes might have created these beds anciently. So they ran the gamut of from the Potawatomi to the Huron, Odawa, the Muscutins, and various other tribes, uh, the Ho-Chunk Sauk in Wisconsin and so forth. And after a year and a half of research, deep research and study, they basically called it quits and said, guess what? None of these tribes or groups were capable or had any interest in creating these types of beds. Now that, and that kind of put uh, the signpost of dead end on the research, and nobody really took it up until about 1992 or four when a young graduate student by the name of William Gardner out of University of Wisconsin got wind from, I believe, a Wisconsin DNR fellow who told him about some raised rows in some woods near uh, Holbert Creek, Wisconsin, and he was he went out and looked at the beds and discovered that uh, they appeared to be ancient. Uh, he did his doctorate on it, and now today he and a doctor, uh, David Overstreet, also from the University of Wisconsin, who is excuse me, an emeritus professor at the College of Menominee Nation now, uh, between the two of them and their graduate students and volunteers, they have pinned down uh, oh, probably two dozen different sites from the Wisconsin Dells area there to uh, the Menominee Reservation in upper Wisconsin. Consequently, um, we now know a great deal more than we ever thought uh, about these ancient garden beds. And when it comes to, uh, and of course, as I say earlier, we have basically no traces of them in Michigan, but now we have a tremendous remnant of garden beds in upper Wisconsin. And um, about, there was a fellow in Holbert who owned all this acreage where uh, these first beds were rediscovered by Gardner. And in 2009, uh, the fellow donated 200 acres of these ancient woodlands to the Ho-Chunk Fox uh, Sauk uh, Historical Society and the Ho-Chunk Sauk Tribe. Uh, who, in their tradition, have been on the land there for a couple thousand years. Uh, flash forward uh, more recently to, say, 2014, 15, so uh, Dr. Overstreet, along with William Gardner and their uh, archaeologists, uh, found literally hundreds of 
uh, acres of ancient garden beds on the Menominee Reservation and round about it in the uh, Wolf River and Wisconsin River areas, uh, Wolf Creek, Wolf River. Uh, and they have, I think, two dozen major sites that they are just scratching the surface on. And if your listeners are interested to actually see what they look like, there's a really neat uh, video that a fellow named Ronaldo Morales did recently, and he takes you on a tour of the woods near Wolf Creek uh, during the winter when the snow is light, and you can actually see these uh, huge rows of ancient garden beds that are 1,000, 2,000 years old or older uh, right in the woods, and he gives you a terrific First Nation explanation of why they created them that way. So now that I've given you kind of a baseline uh, that we had ancient, uh, what uh, Schoolcraft and Bella Hubbard named the ancient garden race of people, they say that they grew crops two, three thousand years ago for centuries without any evidence of warfare uh, on an industrial scale, meaning that they were producing so much food that it was being produced well beyond their needs, you see? So I, uh, in piecing all this together, I've come to my own conclusion, which is they were uh, the ancient grocery store and uh, provided much of the supply logistics chain from all around the Great Lakes, including southern Michigan, portions of Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, right up into uh, western Michigan, the upper peninsula of Michigan. They were the, the grocery store for um, several thousand years for many groups around them and for a, another second culture as, um, or they are the second culture as Overstreet refers to them, uh, and that is uh, a group that most Americans have never heard of, but who uh, are really quite amazing. And that is a group that we focus on a lot with the Ancient American uh, Artifact Preservation Society, APS as we call it, and that is the ancient copper miners of North America. And this is a group that mined in excess of 2 billion, with a B, tons of copper for, it's an estimated as far back by many researchers, as much as 8,000 years. And this copper, the big question in, in academics' minds is, where the heck did it all go? <laughs> and, and it turns out that uh, the vast majority of it went to the old world, to the Mediterranean area, where it jump-started what's known as the Bronze Age, circa about 750 B.C. And consequently, in my research, I've, I believe we're connecting the dots now 
that these people were the grocery store to the ancient copper miners uh, who came, uh, for instance, Phoenicians, Hittites, um, uh, Carthaginians, who had their own massive sailing fleets, and they sailed here through the St. Lawrence River and down into the Great Lakes and up the Mississippi River, which 2,000 years ago was uh, probably a mile wider and uh, half again or half as uh, deeper than it is today. So very easy to navigate right on up to the Chicago River area, which was uh, emptied from Lake Michigan across Illinois into the Mississippi uh, and, uh, and so forth. So they could mine copper, ship it to places like Beaver Island in the middle of Mich- uh, Lake Michigan, route it down to the Chicago Inlet of the Chicago River over to uh, the Mississippi and uh, down to a fascinating place called Poverty Point and other locations on the Gulf where they would uh, further prepare these 60-pound copper ingots um, called oxides by academics because they resemble kind of the hide of a beaver when it's skinned. And they weighed about 60 pounds. And then what they would do is load them into their vessels and sail back to the Mediterranean and, uh, and sell their goods, their product, which was worth uh, considerably more than gold in those days. And uh, we have uh, tremendous um, evidence now that um, the copper getting into the Mediterranean around 750 to 1200 BC, in effect, helped, uh, in effect, caused revolutions uh, on the islands of places like Malta and Crete and perhaps others uh, where the original power structure was thrown down because the people now had the means to uh, make uh, brand new types of weapons and so that was the prime reason that copper and bronze were so highly sought after uh, in that time frame of about uh, uh, 1200 B.C. for 2000 B.C. Ford, because uh, you had two choices then if you were a young man, 16, 17, 18. You were either going to end up in some Egyptian or Hittite uh, or or uh, Ottoman army kind of situation, uh, or you could jump on a ship to a strange land, sail for a year or so, get there, mine for a couple years, sail back in a year or two, and come back and become a multimillionaire. And that's probably what happened to, uh, to my um, uh, uh, outlook. So that's kind of... <laughs> Uh, a hose job in a nutshell <laughs> of uh, what we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, Lon, you've been t- talking about this industrial gardening for you know the, the the native people in Michigan and Wisconsin, and they get the uh, foreigners 
arriving on the ships. So do right. we have any idea of how many people are living in uh, you know, yes. in this area? Or, or is there like a formula to figure that out based on the size of the garden beds? Well, great question. Um, there's there's a couple elements. One is that uh, most a- academics who have studied the ancient copper culture to the extent they can agree on a couple of aspects while everything else is pretty much up to debate. Um, they generally say that um, there were something on the order of 10,000 ancient copper miners per season on Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula. Now, most of the people listening to the broadcast probably have never heard of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and they've probably (laughs) never heard of the Keweenaw Peninsula. But uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan today only has about 200,000 people in it. Um, Yet... uh, it would make a very sizable state in its own right. And Michigan is essentially two peninsulas, if you look at it on a map. Lower Michigan is a peninsula, and then the upper peninsula, of course. If you look at the upper peninsula, there's a big finger that sticks out into Lake Superior across from uh, what's known as Copper Harbor on the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, and thus its name, Copper Harbor, is a place, a large island called Isle Royal. So let me give you the ancient scale of that in terms of the copper miners, and then we'll talk about the population of the garden race uh, in upper Wisconsin, for instance. Um, So if you presume, as the academics generally agree upon, that there were probably roughly 10,000 copper miners in that region in the Keweenaw Peninsula uh, anciently. They place um, a thousand or more on the island of Isle Royal. Now, Isle Royal is just a long strip of land, and I can't recall the precise length of it. I would estimate it's probably 20 miles. 30 miles long. On that island are, I believe, something on the order of over 100,000 dug copper pits, ancient copper pits. And what the ancient miners frequently did is they uh, would dig down about a maximum of 20 feet on average and bring this, what is the remnant of what's known as float copper uh, to the surface by uh, uh, the use of what are called hammer stones. And these hammer stones, they they found thousands and thousands of them uh, around the Keweenaw and Isle Royal and uh, even further south. And they would arc out the copper and then they would gradually lift it because it was so heavy using wood dunnage 
till they brought it to the surface, and then they would roll it over and then proceed to work it. Now, there's a pretty famous chap named Fred Ridholm who spent uh, 40, 50 years uh, uh, examining these copper pits, uh, and he really should have had an honorary Ph.D. He wrote um, a tremendous work on uh, the ancient copper people. And uh, I'll give you the actual title if I can find it, but uh, it was Michigan Copper. And Fred, uh, in his research, uh, I think made a well-founded statement, and he said, uh, and it's very fascinating to archaeologists, that they never have been able to find or locate any ancient uh, dwellings or the remnant of dwellings such as uh, log post holes, for instance, that you would expect uh, all these people to build housing for themselves so that they could house themselves uh, uh, during the seasons of mining and so forth. So Fred uh, discerned that these folks, since they were a maritime society, that they lived on their ships. And so uh, I surmise from that that uh, since, uh, you know, they would have faced uh, winters of 100 to 300 inches of snow up there annually, they knew exactly when to get out of town. <laughs> and so they would, they would do their seasonal mining, uh, take as much of their gross product. Uh, their ships came in with ballast stones if people... Uh, can look up ballast stones. Generally, they were large, round stones with a hole in them, and they would carry this ballast in the belly of the ships to create a proper water line as they sailed here. And then once they were ready to depart and take their product back to the Mediterranean, they would throw out their anchor stones and replace them with hundreds of these copper oxides in the belly of their ships, which would now serve as fresh ballast, you see. So with that in mind, uh, now you have kind of a, a sense of the ancient copper culture or mining groups. And, and, and of course, they were in, just solely engaged in this pursuit. Now, let me explain one other thing that is fascinating. If you look uh, at the pictures that are streaming, uh, I sent in a picture of a group of the AAPS people standing behind a very large, what looks like to most people, because it's black and white here, uh, like a big rock. That is not a rock. That is a nine-ton copper nugget. And it is referred to, <laughs> okay, and that was discovered on somebody's farm back, I think, about 2005 or six. A similar nugget of about, I think, six to eight tons was recently also discovered directly across from Houghton, Michigan, which was a an American mining center for America. In fact, the copper mines at Houghton, Michigan, 
produced uh, most of the the copper in America from the 1880s to about 1940s uh, in Houghton, Michigan. And directly across the river, there was a construction company uh, digging basements about five or six years ago, and they uh, their claw on their excavator hit a nugget that was six or eight tons. And they sold it to the Chinese for $25 million. Um, why? Why? And and to give you give you a, um, an increased depreciation for Michigan copper. Michigan copper tends to be like that nugget. If you look at it on that card, that nugget is ninety three point seven percent pure copper. In other words, um, for instance, anciently. The Romans mined tin and copper in England and elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Most of the other copper in, for instance, Turkey and England and various other tiny sites where they could find it anciently, the copper that is around the rest of the world typically never exceeds 23% purity, which means tremendous amount of human labor has to be expended to heat kilns to almost 1100 degrees to to uh, burn rock so that you can smelt out the op- copper ore right so michigan copper this is called float copper that giant nugget and guess what anciently they were everywhere in the Keweenaw Peninsula. So what I tell people is, uh, and some of our academics and researchers, they all focus on these thousands of pits on Isle Royal. Well, Fred Ridholm says there's close to a million copper pits on the Keweenaw Peninsula. In fact, there are so many pits on Isle Royal that it is a a national protected wilderness area with wolves and elk. And the elk population has suffered, and even wolves, uh, for hundreds of years by stepping in these pits and breaking their legs. Okay? There are so many of them. And Juan, recently... What is it, what is it, what is it in the soil or, or the, the atmosphere or the... Um... In the geology of it? Yeah, yeah, that the, the puts such a great preponderance of copper in that area. Excellent question. That is, uh, that is a, a tremendous uh, geological um, question. Uh, Lake Superior anciently, and we're talking, uh, I think, close to 900 million years ago, uh, blew out volcanically and helped create uh, the basins of Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, and so forth. So um, whenever there's a volcanic blowout, uh, depending on the type of material in the magma, as as you can imagine, uh, you get all kinds of geologic, formations, 
crystals, uh, diamonds, um, iron ore, uh, every kind of mineral you can imagine flows out of it. And uh, geologically, it's very interesting that the Keweenaw Peninsula and Isle Royal um, just happened to be gigantic veins of copper. And it, it just happens uh, through the geologic processes that it turned out that uh, it's like striking, uh, you know, like a miner wants to strike that big vein of gold, right? Well, yeah. this you can think of that vein of gold or massive vein of copper as the entire Keweenaw Peninsula practically and the entire area of Isle Royal and in the very flat um, sands of Lake Superior in between Isle Royal and the Keweenaw Peninsula, they have been finding, using scuba divers now, smaller nuggets, um, you know, that are several hundred pounds, um, a thousand pounds, right off the shorelines of Eagle River and, uh, and uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula. So it, it just worked out that way geologically. Um, now, as, are, the, are the mines are there mines still in operation up there? Um, you mean in terms of uh, contemporary mining corporations? Yeah. Yes, um, there are a few. Uh, uh, most of uh, they, you know, they felt like in the fifties or sixties, most of the copper mining around Houghton, Michigan, Calumet. Uh, forward had pretty much been played out. Uh, for instance, the Calumet mine there, I think across from Houghton, it goes down about 5,000 feet, as I recall. And I've I've been in that mine, uh, just down about 2,000 feet. Uh, but um, about the 40s or 50s, uh, Phillips Dodge in Arizona, which I can speak to, which was uh, an area where I did my geological studies in college, uh, Phelps Dodge Mines created huge copper uh, pit mines, open pit mines, as well as Butte, Montana, and Magna in uh, Salt Lake area of Utah. So, in other words, they found huge mother loads elsewhere where they could do strip mining and haul it out in trucks those massive trucks you see on TV, um, which was faster and more profitable uh, and continue to this day. So, no, there isn't the level of mining at all that there used to be. There is uh, a little bit, uh, but uh, uh, when, for instance, the people that found this nugget on their farm, um, they wanted to sell the nugget so they could pay off the mortgage on their farm and the apps group uh, tried to do that for them. But ultimately uh, the goal of apps was to save this nugget <laughs> and uh, <laughs> put it, put it in a museum. See, so people could appreciate uh, and they could tell the story of the ancient copper mining cultures. Um, but fortunately uh, some investors from China said, you know what, we'll buy it and we'll put it in our museum. So it's in a museum in China now. 
Juan, speaking of you know losing you know th- this piece of copper uh it's going to another country uh you know there has been strip mining uh in, in the area yeah. what is the status of th- these garden beds now are they you know fairly well protected well um thank you for asking the the beds that are on the Menominee Nation, if you were to go on Google Earth, and it's rather interesting, under their treaty uh, agreements, uh, at one time the Menominee Nation, according to Overstreet, held in excess of 10 million acres in Wisconsin. But under uh, you know the treaties of the 1800s, uh, the vast majority of their lands were were just sucked away by the government, and uh, they are relegated to the current reservation area. But if you look on Google Earth, down on their reservation near Kenesha, Wisconsin, and Oconto area of Wisconsin, you will see a beautiful green forest, <laughs> forested area that goes on for miles and miles, and then all the lands around it are basically, you know, farmed lands. To your point, um, uh, in the mid-1990s, there was a lady who discovered, and she was a, uh, a, a doctorate from uh, Northern Michigan University at uh, Marquette, Michigan, and uh, she discovered three miles of ancient, raised garden beds along the edge of the Menominee River uh, at Marionette, Marionette, Wisconsin, which is the Wisconsin River that divides is the borderline from Michigan to Wisconsin. And the uh, Menominee Nation claims the Wisconsin River uh, as the birth river of the tribe essentially because they believe that the first Menominee were created and that the ancestral bear of the Menominee came out of the river and became human and that eagle and bear and wolf and moose and crane, five other clans came out of the river and were formed also. And they represent the, the primary clans of the Menominee people. Um, so understanding that, what has transpired is there is a mining corporation. It's a Canadian mining group um, called the Back 40 Mine. And they own, uh, they have purchased and own, it's called the Aquila Resources Corporation out of Canada. And they've spent about 10 years and some $70 million um strip mining the area. Sadly, this area on the Michigan side is full of ancient mounds, uh, the remains of ancient Menominee villages. And uh, uh, sadly, their mining uh, is going to produce 
uh, tremendous amounts of acid drainage into the river. They're planning on leveling. They will eventually level three miles of ancient garden beds, which I refer to as geofacts, um, like artifacts, but they're, um, they're earth uh, made. So uh, there is a group, there are several groups. I think the uh, Sierra Club, the, uh, the Menominee Tribe, um, there's a No Back 40 initiative. Um, they're not really trying to stop the company from seeking exotic minerals uh, in the northern part of their holdings, um, but they are trying to prevent them from destroying uh, this tremendous historical site and these raised garden beds. And uh, so far, uh, the state of Michigan amazingly has issued permits for them to do uh, metallic sulfide mining uh, and uh, they're going after all kinds of exotic minerals and so forth. And they, uh, so far, if you look down on Google Earth, they have a, a huge complex. And when they say strip mining, they mean strip mining. <laughs> they go, uh, they just, uh, you know, plow back the earth and everything's gone. And they sift out the soils and take the minerals. So that's the status of the Back 40 Mine Project. There is, you know, there's several websites if people want to look at them to find out more about what's going on, uh, they can do so. Um, but it is a, a grave concern to the to all of us. Uh, um, you know, I don't have a problem myself with them mining so long as it doesn't uh, destroy, you know, the mounds and so forth. I mean, can you imagine, for instance, a company being allowed to move into Newark, Ohio, and start strip mining the giant serpent mound? <laughs> or Cahokia outside of uh, St. Louis? It just, it's unthinkable, you know? And so. Uh, 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 that's just losing uh, too, too much history. Uh, yeah, right. uh, you, know, you, you know, you just can't recover no, anything like that. Yeah, and and we see that since the pioneers scraped off the land and plowed the southwest Michigan area. You know, by the 1880s, it was gone, and there was nothing more to know uh, other than what was recorded uh, previously. Um, but in terms of the Menominee Nation, and I know we're running out of time here, but I would like your audience to know that uh, according to Dr. Overstreet and their research, um, there's several fascinating aspects about the raised garden beds that people need to know. One is that um, they have discovered uh, literally thousands of, Hundreds anyway, but they're going to find thousands of ancient storage pits, um, subground storage pits. They're, they range from about four feet deep. They're built of stone, and uh, the ancient garden race would uh, use them to store produce. Uh, additionally, uh, they found out that these gardens were extremely sophisticated, 
For instance, not only did they use the three sisters intercropping method, which um, which uh, uh, is said to uh, uh, produce a better quality of uh, of product, uh, they uh, they were masters at soil chemistry and soil dynamics. In fact, uh, Overstreet said they only found out recently that they built many of their garden beds on bedrock, which they could not comprehend because nobody puts gardens on bedrocks because they thought uh, bedrock, um, usually there's a gravel atop it, and you just have to pour tons and tons of soil on it. Well, apparently they did, and they would uh, regularly replenish their soil with millions of basket loads of wetland muck and probably, like the Chinampas Gardens of uh, Mexico, probably used night soil, if you catch the drift, uh, as a fertilizing agent. And they would regularly, annually, rebuild their beds with highly nutritious restorative uh, wetland mucks. Additionally, they created a type of pottery known as shell-tempered pottery as opposed to the Mississippi and Cadoan form and uh, woodland forms of pottery, which were made from stone grinding granites down and mixing with clay and firing them they would typically make their pottery what's called shell-tempered pottery. They would use uh, calcium snail shells, mush it up, and, um, and create their pottery f- from this. And uh, uh, the archaeologists are amazed by this because chemists have told them that this was brilliant because not only when they mixed their corn, maize, and squash, and beans, and peas, in their pottery, they were uh, mixing it and taking up the calcium in their food stuffs as they created their food. Uh, they were pulling in what's called calcium uptake in their diet, making them very healthy ancient American people. <laughs> and so they were, and, and uh, furthermore, they said the beds, um, Uh, they found broken pottery fragments in the bed, but they were placed there. They placed the pottery fragments vertically to help reinforce the root beds of the corn and beans. Additionally, through this, he said, we found out something else amazing about the social culture. Um, Overstreet says uh, they are they were unlike classical Native American cultures who built lodges and villages uh, in close density and maybe palisades around them against uh, invaders or intruders. Instead, he said their housing uh, was much different and it was very spread out and diverse. Um, and to give you a sense, for instance, of the spoke wheels and the size of these garden beds, uh, for instance, uh, some of those beds where you see spokes 
those were 6 to 20 feet wide as they radiated out from a huge center. Um, some of those other beds that you see, the long ones, are 14 feet wide and 20 inches or so high. So uh, additionally, as they looked and they've been studying the microscopic pollens and what we call phytoliths or starches uh, found in the beds, and they have found things uh, like, you know, the beans, the squash, peas. Uh, and incidentally, uh, these bean starches that they're finding in the beds predate all the supposed uh, academic views that beans got here about the 1500s when the Spanish went into Central America and so forth. Guess what? There were beans being raised in these garden beds for thousands of years before the Spanish ever came to this continent. Where did they get those beans? Hey, they got them uh, probably from the Phoenicians, Hittites, Carthaginians who sailed here. Um, so uh, what they also found was something else very fascinating called Chenopodium. And to most people, but herbalists may recognize it because it has been an anti-parasitic used by First Nation people for centuries as an anti-parasitic against worms. And uh, those uh, chenopodium starches have been found up and down these uh, garden beds. So uh, sort of in closing, I would say, what I have come to believe now is, as I kind of said in the beginning, you, uh, and I should preface that by saying, and I think Overstreet and Gardner have it right, the Menominee Nation people who consist of about, their census arrives at about nine to 10,000 people in the Menominee Nation reservation area proper, they, I believe, and I believe Overstreet uh, underscores, and I get it from him, they have been on the landscape here for close to 10,000 years. Now, there's a couple of cool things about that that I'll touch on in a second. I believe the Menominee people, and hopefully we can do some DNA studies, or somebody will in the near future, and look at their haplogroups, because I believe their haplogroup will trace itself back to uh uh, the old world, the ancient world of Europe and the Mediterranean and probably North Africa vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis many of the sailing groups. <clears throat> well, we got to have yes. you on for two-hour show. <laughs> we're, yeah, it, it, we're down it, to 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, Lon, uh, and you know, if people want to learn more from you and what uh, – you know Rick Osman and Wayne May, uh -huh. and all, all the other speakers uh, are going to be discussing about America's uh, ancient history. They can go to the AAPS conference in Harris, uh, Michigan, on October fifth through seventh at the Island Resort and Casino. Right, and, and uh, uh, they can they go could to go to a, a, yeah. Uh, AAPF.org uh, website yes. and 
and they can make contacts there. And I would also turn them on to Wayne May, look up Wayne May and Ancient American Magazine, and uh, they will get their minds blown on ancient history and just how many cultures have uh, come in and out of America for thousands of years. Okay, guys, they're just going to cut us off. Thank you so much, and, and good night to both of you. Thank you, Barbara. It's been great chatting with you and Mark. Have a, have a great one.